Have you ever felt like giving up, quitting, throwing in the towel? Welcome to Never Ever Give Up Hope featuring Carol Graham. She's an author, health coach, and motivational speaker. Backed into a corner multiple times in her life, Carol shares with you stories on how she overcame some of the toughest obstacles a person can go through in life, but refused to give up hope. Rather than admit defeat, an opportunity was presented, and it involves each and every one of you. Carol will feature spectacular guests who will share their messages of hope, encouragement, and their inspiration to prove why life's adversities only make you stronger. And now, welcoming the host of the show, here's Carol Graham. Jay for that introduction and I also want to thank all my listeners from around the world. We are now in 51 different countries and I'm thrilled about this because it really shows me that people from all types of all countries, all walks of life, all places in the world need the message of hope and they enjoy the message of hope and of course they also are many that can share that message so i appreciate each one of you and when you leave your comments and reviews it means a great deal to me personally and also to this show's success so thank you thank you claire mcelaney is a best-selling author has had a variety of careers before she found her true calling. And I think there will be people that will certainly be able to relate with that as well. She was a policewoman who later became a prosecutor. From there, she went to a corporate life while she was still earning degrees and seeking her creative self. She established Creative Vision Publishing, teaching herself what skills she needed in the field of marketing and branding. So she is a self-taught woman. Then after spending a week with Jack Canfield, now Jack is um, chicken soup for the soul. I'm sure all of you recognize his name. After spending a week with him, it hit her and she began to create. But let's go back a bit. Welcome, Claire. Thank you. Now, Claire, let's start with because of the premise of this show, which is hope versus hopelessness. Was there a time in your life when you felt hopeless and how did you cope with that? Oh, look, I think um, being human, the, the human nature. Is- <laughs> uh, so yeah, the answer to that is yes. I think it's always come at a time when uh, I think, I mean, I believe very much in energetic um, alignment and, being such a creative person naturally when I'm out of alignment when I'm not creating that's when I felt inexplicably um, helpless and uh, that that's occurred through my corporate life there's been times of exhilaration and um, excitement but when I've been out of that out of the zone you know I think that's the best way to explain it that's when I felt that absolute helplessness I've not understood why I'm feeling the way I've been feeling and I think there's a lot of people who would possibly relate to that that it's just such a feeling it's like almost like um, I'm not sure if it is depression frustration um, uh, it's just a black feeling for me um, and I think 2009 would have been the critical point for me uh, a lot happened in that year and um, I I actually contemplated, I call it checking out. I actually contemplated checking out, getting off the planet, jumping off the bus, whatever you want to call it. And, um, you know, we were, we were facing losing our house. My husband's business in printing had failed. He'd been kicked out as a, um, as a director by a, a man who um, is obviously facing his own demons and wanted to turn them on my husband my husband's the sweetest most gentle kind man you'll ever meet in your life and uh this guy signed across um had made my husband personal guarantor for all of the printing the new printing equipment through Fuji Xerox and uh, when he kicked him out of the company he basically changed the locks everything he did was just so 
um, lacking in proprietary. I, I had contacted all of the legal people in Australia for um, directorship and they, I was told there was nothing that he could do. So he was personal guarantor for all of the Fuji Xerox equipment and uh, they were basically chasing that debt of $65,000 because what this person did was in three months after he kicked, or maybe four months after he kicked my husband out of the company, he um, he decided to foreclose the company that he was a part of. And uh, obviously because my husband's signatures were on this paperwork, he was part of the deal. Now what he had also done um, three weeks after my husband had been kicked out of the company had signed on another machine. So you're talking mm. tens thousands of dollars that my husband was personal guarantor for. Now, at that time, and I'm sure that Fuji Xerox, so hopefully they've sorted out their uh, their conscionable conduct in this. You can tell I have a legal background. Um, <laughs> <laughs> they, uh, they were chasing the money for this, but this machine had been signed on without my husband's knowledge, without his signature, and yet he was still, according to the contract, liable for wow. the debt. Yeah, wow. So I um, and and amongst all of that, we had uh, become estranged from our um, fifteen-year-old. I think she was at the time daughter. She's my stepdaughter, my husband's daughter. She'd moved out of the family home, and uh, it was just what I would call a uh, a crap year. <laughs> you know, it was the the year from absolute hell. And I, yeah, at that time, I felt hopeless. I felt we were about to lose our house. I felt like I was not doing what I was put on the planet to do, if I was even thinking about that um, work. I had my own company with my husband by then, um, but and I was designing. I'm a self-taught designer, photographer. I'm not a self-taught marketer. I've learned that trade through big corporate companies such as Cadbury, um, oh, HP, okay. Okay. HP Fuller in America, which is a Fortune 500 company. I was on the leadership council for branding with them. Um, they, they're not the people who do brooms for people who are listening. They're the people from the northeast who do glue. Very big company. Uh, and anyway, I, but I was working for myself and all of this was happening and here we were staring down the gun of a massive debt, which the only way to pay that debt would be to sell our beautiful home and my studio, which uh, we'd just recently finished and built. So I remember feeling at the depths of despair and I got in the car and I drove out to Chadston which uh, any Australian listeners will know that that's um, Australia's biggest shopping centre it was near our home and I Carol I sat in the car um, and I howled I absolutely howled and I don't know why I went to a car park it seems ridiculous why but it was nine o'clock in the morning that there were people turning up for work um, and I howled and I wrote my final words to all of my family and friends. And, you know, and I figured, how am I going to do this? I, I don't want to be here anymore. This is, it's enough. I, I cannot take another thing. And I, I, I still get teary when I think about it and talk about it because when you think about checking off the planet, um, you know, you, you, you think about drawing that last breath, you start thinking about the people you love. You start thinking about right. the people... You know, and you, you're not thinking any selfish thoughts. I don't think that that is a selfish action. In fact, it's probably the most unselfish action that anyone can take because you're thinking, why am I causing you guys all this trouble? And then you start thinking about the people who you hate, who actually you feel may have put you in this situation in the first place. For whatever reason, I sat there for three hours. No one knew where I was. Really? I not answer any phone calls um, and I put three people who do love me through hell in that three hours um, I know that our estranged daughter thought that I was an absolute idiot um, for, for what I was doing and it was very scathing of me but she was 15 at the time anyway I got in the car oh I was in the car so I turned on the car and I thought this is ridiculous I, this is a stupid situation to be in I drove home I went for a walk the next day and I just meditated. When I walk, I meditate. And as I was nearing the corner to come home, I just said to God, the universe, the, the higher power, whatever it is, I just said, 
what am I meant to do in this situation? And it hit me like uh, it was a beautiful sunny day and I closed my eyes momentarily as I walked and it hit me between the eyes. And I got home and the main thing on my mind was the debt. It was funny because I'd, I'd walked through this dark space of howling my eye, you know, bawling my eyes out. But the debt was the thing I knew I needed to clear. I did not want to lose our family home. And it hit me. Contact Fuji Xerox, Claire. Contact Fuji Xerox. So I got on Google. I found the CEO of Fuji Xerox. It was a woman. I thought, hmm. Fab- I thought, fabulous, it's a woman. I know that this is a good sign. And she was in Japan, uh, so she was the head of Fuji Xerox globally, and I wrote to her. I wrote six pages to her. I explained what had happened. I explained the deceit behind what had happened with this debt. And I, um, I pulled up their values of Fuji Xerox globally, and that was about honesty, transparency, and ethical behaviour. And I wrote it, finished the six-page letter, which was typed, and so that was a long letter. <laughs> <laughs> um, I can be verbose. And, <laughs> but I, put, I pulled out every single thing that had happened and I sent it to this woman, hoping that as woman to woman she would understand. I told her what I'd done. I told her I'd sat in a car park and howled for three hours and considered taking my own life. Six weeks later, on the 6th of January, uh, that would be 2010 now, I received a letter from Fuji Xerox, one of the biggest companies in the world who take no prisoners when it comes to debt. They had forgiven the debt and basically had closed it. Really? Uh, Really. And, uh, you know, can you believe that through all of this darkest moment, that's what we're talking about, and looking for hope, looking for being at the part of my life where I felt that I wanted to check out because of money. I mean, how stupid. Money, money, money. Why? Mm-hmm. Why? <laughs> that moment of pause, that moment of reflection, that moment of meditation while I walked, that moment of asking for a higher power for help, it came and it happened. Um, and you so learned that- the lesson of never giving up. Oh, gosh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Don't- if there's, if there's anyone listening thinking that things are so bad that you may need to check off this planet, imagine the planet as a big bus. It's taking you on a journey. And you can, if you want to, you can get off the bus when it pauses or you can stay on the bus and you can see it through. And I would urge anyone feeling like that right now, stay on the bus. It is worth it. If you look at where I am today versus where I am or was seven years ago, Oh, gosh. That's only seven years ago. Let's back up for just a moment. Now, when you were in that car, were you going through, what emotions were you going through? I mean, you did share a little bit, but were you going through guilt and shame? Were you going through, uh, were you arguing with yourself? Like, how did you pull yourself through that particular time right there in that car? Oh, to turn so, around and, and, you know, and, and go home. It was black. It was, um, I have never sobbed as hard as I have for three hours. It was, a, it was like a, an energetic purging of everything that was inside me. Um, I felt angry, really, really angry. Um, I felt absolute despair. Um, I don't think I felt guilt. Okay. Uh, I don't think I felt guilt. I, I, it was The place was um, absolute frustration and lack of control of what was happening in my life at the time. You know, I, my um, stepdaughter, I love her more than she will, she will ever know. And her leaving the family household had a lot to do with stuff that was going mm. on mm-hmm. Bill's side of the family at the time. And uh, I felt absolute anger at that and and you know what um a lot of people who i've come across call me an empath i don't know if you've had those on the show before so empaths take on the emotions of people who are around them and we we don't understand why 
I can walk into a room and someone can be really upset and hurt and I can feel that upset and mm-hmm. hurt with it. And I think that a lot of the feelings that were going through at the time were possibly those of people around me and I had all of those feelings plus my own higgledy-piggledy inside me at the time and that's where the anger was coming from. It wasn't my own anger or possibly, so I have to own it. It was mm-hmm. part of my own. Um, but I also think I was taking on a lot of the other stuff that was happening in my life and uh, that crying and that despair was purging that that emotion and and it's taken you know a long time to recognize that to understand it and when I do get angry to to own it it's my anger I can't say (laughs) even though I'm (laughs) even though I might be feeling someone else's emotions I'm I'm owning it at the moment and I can either stop it or I can um, go with it. It's, well, it's it's amazing what you just said because if you think about it, children, even babies, are a lot like that. And when the mother is, you know, extremely frustrated or whatever, the child picks up on it. And even animals. I mean, I think what we do is, as we get older, we lose some of that ability. Would you Would you agree with that? I I would, and um, it, it's, it's a really good point because animals definitely pick up on our emotions. If you're sad, your dog will be sad, mm-hmm. and uh, and babies as well. If a mother, you know, they say that um, a mother's positivity or negativity is pushed down through her children. If she's an optimistic person, the children will grow up to be optimistic adults, and the reverse. Right, I totally agree with that. We need to tap into those uh, feelings. <laughs> a book that I read years ago on exactly that. I I can't remember the name of the author. He has a a, a Jewish surname but a very famous psychiatrist in Walter, someone or other, I think. But he, he talks about that, and um, I think what he's tapping into there, he talks about the positivity, negativity of a mother. But for people who are empaths, um, then, you know, they're the indigo children, they're the, um, they're the children who were always able to connect with other people's emotions, and, and you don't understand what you're doing or why you're doing it. <laughs> And it's often incredibly creative people who do that. Now, Claire, when you were a teenager, you went through also a time of some deep, deep pain, and that was when your father was killed. Now, how did that change your life, and did it affect you, and how did it affect you? Yeah, Losing Dad, he died in a car accident. And I can remember it vividly because uh, being a writer um, as a teenager I wrote and I wrote and I wrote every day I wrote (laughs) so I've got all of those journals and um, I can feel the raw pain of a 17 year old just turned 17 of the day that dad died he was driving uh, we were were living in far north Queensland at the time and he was driving um, back from town to the restaurant that he'd recently opened and he basically came off the road and hit a tree and was killed instantly. Mm. That that changed me in a lot of ways. I'm the youngest of three kids and my brothers are two years and two years older than me, but they weren't living with us at the time, so it was just me and mum. At 17, I didn't have a good relationship with mum at all. Uh, I just started to become close to my dad and talk to him maybe two months before he died, and we're not a close family. We don't tell each other we love each other a lot. We didn't hug a lot as kids. We were um, my father, mother, English background, my father, upper-class English background. You just didn't do those things. Mm-hmm, when we're mm-hmm. A good family. We're a good family unit, not a horrible family, but um, just not a close family. So when I was faced with this raw emotion, <laughs> I had no one to talk to. I, I had to take a lot on board. I remember my oldest brother said to me that um, it was time that I had to be there for my mum. And I told my teacher, this my English teacher at the time, who came out to the house to talk to me, and she said, but Claire, who's going to be strong for you? And I was 17, and I, was, I said, well, and I started crying, and I didn't want to cry in front of anybody. I did not want to shed a tear in front of a soul. So until the funeral, I didn't cry. Um, but in front of anyone, mm-hmm. no one. It was quite. It was bizarre. In in this day and age, thirty thirty years later, you just go, "What the? You know why? <laughs> <laughs> what? You were seventeen and no one hugged you. What was going on there?" 
you know, and a lot of people said to me, you know, you have to be strong, Claire, you have to be strong. And it was a bit surreal. And I remember the funeral that um, as I sat at the front bench with my girlfriends from school, um, you know, my brothers were pallbearers, so they left the church, they had to. And my mother was taken from the church and I was left sitting in the church by myself. And it was bizarre. It was like, and I write, I write that uh, as I got up and I left the church by myself, I said, and I left God inside. So for me, it was a deeply um, changing, uh, you know, it was a time that I I left my spirituality for a while behind. I found it again, but um, with the, all the drama that only a 17-year-old mm-hmm. must <laughs> I, I left God inside at, the t- at that time and um, didn't want to go back. I'd sung two songs. I'm a singer as well, and I'd sung two songs at the funeral. And, of course, what happens to your diaphragm when you're upset, trying not to cry mm-hmm. if you can't sing. So um, it must have been it must have been like listening to a teenager howling, I think, because uh, it wouldn't have <laughs> it wouldn't have sounded any good at all. But it, it affected me. It I went from being a, a kid who laughed a lot to someone who wrote a lot, um, and I kept a lot of it inside. I, I drank a lot after that, uh, and it affected me for years, years and years. Really. Uh, yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? How it is. Get told to move on, and um, you know you do move on. I joined the police force, so but this was always there, right through into my twenties. And I still miss it now. Let's want to back up for a moment about your estranged stepdaughter. Did you ever reconnect with her? The reason I ask is because I hear this story far too often. And it's very sad, and it would be encouraging if, in fact, she did reconnect with you for the listeners. Yeah, no, she she has, um, and I give all credit to her, um, not to anything that myself or Bill have done. She's an amazing young woman. She, uh, we, we're in Bali most of the time, living Bali in Indonesia, and she recently spent two weeks with her with her partner. So we have reconnected and um, I really think it's kudos to her. She lost her birth mother when she was seven years old to cancer and Mm. uh, the family fragmented. Bill and I had, uh, her her mother was sick for a year, I think, and Bill and I had connected in that time as well. So it was, it was what you would call messy. Mm -hmm. And uh, And hard for her to understand probably possible for her to understand you know she she'd always at, at the age of seven wanted to call me mum and I'd always said no 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 you, you have a mum you know your, your mum isn't here with you now but you have a mum and Bill's side Bill's um side of the family not his mother his mother is fabulous but his side of the family uh and his ex-wife's sister had made life absolute hell mm. I think it was what you would call adults acting very badly but so they did <laughs> <laughs> they did. They did the best that they could at the time. I've always said that to my stepdaughter that people can only do what they know how to do. They can't do any better. If they could, they would. Well, they want to bring you to their level. Exactly. Um, it's, it was like a big dark cloud for mm-hmm. them, and, uh, and she was caught up in the middle of that as a little girl. So it's no surprise what happened. Happened. I was a. I was what I would call um, a terrible stepmother. I couldn't cope with this kid. Um, who had all of these issues and wasn't playing the game that I wanted the game to be played mm. at. I wanted her not to lose her blazer and, you know, I wasn't a mum. I didn't have my own children. I didn't know how to mother. Uh, I wanted her not to have a dirty room. I didn't want her to lie. I didn't want her to steal money for lunch and all these issues. Mm-hmm. That I, I, I got really angry with her. I couldn't understand why can't you just play the game? <laughs> <laughs> So it's kudos to her because um, she had all this stuff going on and she all she wanted was to be loved and to find a place that was her own. So uh, we are back um, as a family unit and she's an amazing, amazing young woman. Uh, uh, you know, the love I have for her is more than ever before. So, Well, that is wonderful news. I'm glad that you were able to share that. That's excellent. Now, Claire, you are a driven, motivated woman. 
that's an understatement, I'm sure, because we're going to now talk about some of the things that not only you have accomplished, but what you've got on your plate. Did that motivation or that drive come because you were dissatisfied with what you were doing in the various careers that you had and looking for your creative self? Or what was your your drive, your motivation stem from? I really believe, um, and I can say this now that I'm nearly 50, that when when you get into the zone of what your life calling is, you will become driven. Everybody will become driven. When you're doing what you're put on this planet to do, you will. You have no choice. Um, you become like a whirlwind. I've always been a high achiever and um, I think that's uh, my father was a perfectionist, an incredibly intelligent man. Um, and I think that... I've inherited that. I was never told, you're female, you can't do this. Or, In fact, if I came home with a B grade on my report card, they would laugh and say, who got the A? Which is probably not a very nice thing to say to a kid. But um, So I was always put in the position that if I didn't get the absolute result that was possible for myself, if I got a B and nobody else got an A, that was deemed in our family to be, that was good. <laughs> Great, no one else got an A, so you must have done really well. So it was always out there for me and my siblings to achieve high. And I got three degrees in seven years. So I think you would call that driven even before, you know, working full-time and studying part-time to get three degrees, one of them being a grad dip. Uh, I I think you'd call that pretty driven. Um, I was also teaching aerobics. I was a prosecutor and I... And I'd just got married, my ex-husband. Um, I'd just got married as well, so I was a new wife. We'd paid off our house. And, you know, life has always been a whirlwind for me. But when I got into the creative zone after spending time with Jack Canfield, I created like I have never created before. I have now published nine books, written six of those, designed them, done photography for them. I'm working on two at the moment. So... And you love every minute of it. I do. I'm blessed in every way. And it's because I feel when I'm in that creative zone and it's like a, um, uh, how can I explain it? I don't know where all of your listeners come from spiritually or uh, in their creative selves, but when I sit down and I'm writing and creating, I almost uh, it's almost like channeling it. it it's like uh, something takes over my body I'm just the vehicle I turn up and it comes out of me so uh, Elizabeth Gilbert's made this observation about when you're creating and it's your job is to turn up God will take care of the rest that's how I feel and it's so, working for you working for me and <laughs> um, you know I don't I, I, I'm not a religious person in terms of I don't go to church on Sunday it's Sunday morning here in Perth but there's certainly a connectivity there of energy that when you're in that purpose of why you're here on the planet, you have no choice but to do what you're here to do. And I really believe I'm doing that now by publishing and uh, bringing other people's vision to life. It's an incredible gift. I'm very lucky. And that gives you incredible satisfaction. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I love it. It's a, it's like winning the lottery every time you, um, you know, I've just delivered a book, a mock-up of a book to a client here in Perth, Vida, uh, and I, I'm going to get her name wrong now, Vida Carlino. She's a, an empowerment coach, a transformational coach, and we have co-created this incredible book. Gosh, it's lovely. And uh, I delivered the mock-up to her on Friday and she was just so emotional, almost crying, seeing her work in the form that it is now. And uh, it's a great buzz. I'm lucky. <laughs> well, tell us about your publishing company. Because you mentioned, you mentioned that you publish books and write books. So what is, what is your role there? I've set up Creative Vision. You did pronounce it correctly. Creative Vision Publishing. And I did that to create my own books. I wanted to self-publish, but being a marketer and having the skills, I thought, well, it's a bit crazy if I pay someone else to do the work for me, so I did it myself. I changed my company name from Creative Vision Holdings to Creative Vision Publishing and set about 
creating books because I thought, well, I can do all of this and I could do all of this. So the first one I did was um, Bali Soul Journals, which I co-created with Trish McNeil, who's a photographer, a friend of mine from school. And the book just, in five months, we had this book and we'd heard people spending one, two, three years writing a book and we thought, oh, what? It can't take that long. That's ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> so, so we created the book and then people started asking me to help them with their book. So I designed and created Looking for Borneo, which is by an author, Mark Hayward, who's a bestseller in Indonesia. David Metcalf, who is a, a world-renowned photographer, and Khan Wilson, who's an artist in Bali, in Ubud, and a teacher. So I did that, and that, that one I'm really proud of because it's an artist, a photographer, and a writer, all with pre-created work. And to put that together into, into a book and to make it work was a real challenge, but it worked because it was obviously meant to be. I wrote Things You Need to Know About Bali, which is an e-book. That's the Amazon bestseller that you were talking about. That okay. still, still sits in the top ten. I didn't publish that in print because um, it, it's a very long book to start off with. It would cost quite a lot. And I just felt that it was better off as an e-book. Uh, so last year that went to number one. It became bestseller, number one in travel, then, then number one in Southeast Asia, number one in books on Bali and... That was the first book that I ever wrote and, you know, basically published. And that was when I had that moment from Jack Canfield. I had in my head that I wanted to have one million copies of this book. Now, in hindsight, sometimes the goals we set for ourselves aren't logical. And they, <laughs> they, <laughs> like, okay, there's uh, 15 million people who are set to visit Bali this year from all around the world with most of them from Australia. Well, I've got to tell you that most Australians who visit Bali, they they reckon they already know Bali. <laughs> <laughs> they don't want a book about things you need to know about Bali. And I found that I learnt the hard way. <laughs> don't tell Australians about Bali because they already know about Bali. And if they don't know about Bali, they think they know about Bali. <laughs> so that was, uh, that was kind of a funny goal. But uh, Jack said to me on the last day, he goes, Claire, look, the, and he'd seen the book. He said, look, the book is great. But if you connected with the Wyans and the Mudays and the Gedes in Bali and got their story, that would resonate a lot mm. more. And not not just telling me what to do, you know what I should and shouldn't be doing in Bali about theft and muggings and all well, you know I, I, that's interesting. I, I know I need to know about that sort of stuff. But tell me about people's stories, and it just hit me like a light. <laughs> And that's where Bali Soul Journals came from, Soul Journals. Okay, okay. Journals about the soul, the people in Bali, and about Bali's soul. You know, Bali um, Bali's a very spiritual place, and a lot of strange things happen there. A lot of people uh, get into a very creative zone. So I wanted to connect with that in Bali Soul Journals and about what's happening. Bali uh, environmentally what's happening there is terrible the the island is literally slowly falling into um, rack and ruin because of tourism because it's the, the the land is not being cared for they're nearly out of water they're in a bad space right now wow. and I wanted I wanted to capture that but not in a way that told the Balinese how to fix what is going on on their island I wanted to capture it in a way that said your island is so so beautiful capture that beauty and you need to look after it culturally if you look after the culture everything else will follow so I'm not sure if I've achieved that but the book is a is a bestseller in Indonesia and uh, people who do buy the book love the book not even if they don't know Bali it's because of the stories of course that was that's the secret and now, how was your connection uh, with? How did you make that connection with Jack? Because obviously, he well, he, he's an incredible man, and he certainly has insight, which certainly helped you. So, how did you make that connection with him? I've got no idea. I was sitting in. I was in bed one morning, and um, it was raining. The email came up as a personal invitation from Jack to a retreat, and it was in Bali. Oh my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> and he was on my um, vision board list of someone. I don't, <laughs> this is really? 
That's amazing. Someone I wanted to meet. This is really funny. Alice, um, Alice who is his uh, – Alice and Jess are his – left and right hand women in um his in his company <laughs> and, and anyway i had in 2009 when i'd been going through this terrible year and i'd come through the other side and i'd done a vision board and i'd actually photoshopped myself on a retreat next to jack i don't know oh who I that's took, funny i don't know who i took out of the photo <laughs> But I'd put myself in the photo and uh, I sent the photo to Jess, Jessica, or Jess, sorry, and Alice. <laughs> and they sent it round the office, round the Jack Canfield office, trying to work out who I was and what retreat I'd be oh, on. Oh, my word. That's hilarious. A so, visionary. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I didn't. I didn't fess up until they actually came to Bali and I said, no, no, I photoshopped myself in. I took someone out. I didn't. I haven't done a previous course. So I don't know because you, you're meant to be a pretty special person if you get on these retreats with Jackie, doesn't he? <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't just take anybody, even though you do pay for it. He, he doesn't just take anybody. And uh, so I found myself on this retreat and um, I almost died and went to heaven when I met Jack as I walked across the <laughs> the bridge but it was a life-turning moment it was in 2013 and uh, that was when I realized things you need to know about Bali was the start but not the direction it was the experience but not the journey and uh, so from there the journey has been creating other people's books so that's the direction you're talking about Absolutely, absolutely. And how do you do? Do do you advertise? Um, do people just come to you word of mouth, or how 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 do you promote that? It's word of mouth now, and um, I realised early last year that uh, Bali wasn't ever going to be the market for me. I'm legally not allowed to work in Bali, so I don't. I have to earn income outside Bali which I'd been doing anyway with my company, Creative Vision. Um, I was still doing marketing work. We were exporting, uh, ordering part of our um, work. We were organising printing for people. My husband was a print broker when we first moved to Bali. So we were still doing that and earning very good money in that way through the company. But now now that I've done nine books, three of them for other people, um, people are coming to me and I almost, uh, I'm doing two books at the moment. I start another book immediately that those two books go to press and uh, I've got two clients I'm meeting with tomorrow, one of whom wants to do a book as well. So basically my, my days are full with people coming to me to do their book. And once the once the two books that go to press in a couple of weeks um, hit the market, I, I don't think I'm going to, going to be spending Sunday mornings lying in bed like I am now talking to you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're making people jealous. <laughs> but then you also broke your ankle, so you're allowed to lie in bed for a few weeks anyway, right? Right, absolutely. <laughs> so why is the book Bhutongs of Bali such a special book? Well, that, that, when I talk about channeling books, that one was channeled. I would sit at my desk and it wrote itself. It just, I, I, I read the words and I think, I didn't write that. Someone else wrote that. <laughs> um, it's a book about a family of ducks called the Bhutongs of Bali and they come from the king, the kingdom of Ducktopia, which is obviously fictitious, but if I tell Balinese women they believe me and they lean forward on their chairs and then they ask me, so how do you get to the kingdom of Ducktopia? Mm. <laughs> they don't realise it's in my head. But these, these ducks, um, they don't realise they come from that kingdom because their memory was wiped after the kingdom fell and they were taken to a safe haven, a pond, in Bali. And one day, one of the ducks, Cheeky, learns of uh, his heritage because he, got, he drifts too far in the pond and one of the koi fish there, uh, Agung, is his name, he's talking to all of the other fish and he's actually standing on his tail with a little cane and that's where Cheeky learns of his heritage. Well, his life change changes from that moment. Agung 
tells him of the trouble that the world is in, that, that Bali is um, in dreadful trouble with tourism and the environment and that he is charged to find the kingdom of Ductopia and find the manuscript that was written three centuries before. And it's a, it's a journey that he takes with a couple of his siblings and they pick up friends along the way. They go to Nusa Penida, which is an island off Bali, and they learn of the devastation from um, the aerial point of view of what's happening with Bali. But meanwhile, there's a very dark spirit that's following them and that dark spirit wants Bali to be in a dark place. So the book, uh, the book is a, it, I wrote it for children. I actually wrote it for my stepdaughter when we came on our honeymoon without her. And uh, it, it, it just developed into a book, which is more for adults. Adults love it. it, it um, hmm. <laughs> I think it's like reading Watership Down or, you know, it's got a very, it's got adult messages but that kids understand. So yes, yes. It's written in a, I've written it in my voice. So it's as if I'm telling the story, but um so kids can read it. There are some challenging words, but it's not written in a complicated way. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But I, I love that book. And also because I illustrated it too, um, I can now call myself an artist. I've always drawn and painted, <laughs> <laughs> amongst other things. And when I do that, I am so happy. I go to my happy place. If I'm, if I'm feeling sad, I pull out my oils or my pencils and I, I paint and I draw and I did the pictures for this and that pulled me into my happy space many many times to do that for the book if that explains yes definitely definitely yes and what is your in your near future as far as what you want to do next wow um just keep doing what i'm doing uh i have a book called inspirational wa women wa stands for western australia and I have recently met with 15 of the most incredible inspirational women. Um, have I got time to tell one of these? Absolutely. Stories? Uh, they come from all walks of life. One of them, uh, Kim. Kim has developed a foundation in, in Western Australia called Standing Strong. It's for girls between 14 and 17 years old, and it's like a, a membership. And she teaches through the program she has there um, body image and self-empowerment and self-respect, self-love. And the reason that she does it is because when she was a teen, she was a very large teenager. She was not only overweight, but she was very, very tall. So as people, kids do, she was bullied relentlessly throughout her teenage years and her, her youth. She was picked on to the point that she writes that it was almost as if because she was big, people thought that she had an invisible shield and it didn't matter. They could, mm. say what, they could say whatever they wanted. So when she got to the age of 16, she went to bed and, like me, um, she decided to check out, to get off the bus, get off the planet. She'd had enough. There was, she did not want to spend another day living. So she slowly willed herself to die. By the time her mother checked in on her, um, she was she was literally dying. She got rushed to intensive care, and the doctors say that she had ten minutes left before her throat closed over completely. Had she not got to hospital, they didn't know what was wrong with her. They jabbed her with um, injections. They they took blood from her. There was nothing physically wrong with her, and. After spending a couple of days in ICU and then in emergency and then into the children's ward, she overheard the doctor say to her mother, has she been going under any, you know, is she undergoing any stress at the moment because we cannot figure out what's wrong with her. And in that moment at 16 years old, she realised the power of her mind. She realised that she had the power to kill herself, to do negative damage to her body, and she figured that if I can do this to myself, I can also do positive stuff to myself. And at that moment, her life changed. She went on. She'd been failing at school. She went on to finish in the top um, 9% for her four subjects of the state. So she finished year 12. She went on to university and studied behavioural sciences. And she learned everything that she could about the mind and the power of the mind. 
And now this remarkable young woman is um, teaching other hmm. women. At that, that horrible time between 14 and 17, that's what the time my stepdaughter was in when we became estranged. It was a time mm-hmm. that my dad, It's a. it can be a great time or not. And when Oprah Winfrey came to Perth in um, December last year, Kim wrote her a letter. And she probably she would have said it to sent it to is it Gaynor who is her um, PA, I think that's her name. She sent it to her and said that she would love to meet Oprah. And now, can you imagine how many letters Oprah gets saying? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, anyway, using the power of the mind and the power of belief, they got in touch with her and they gave her. 100 tickets to go to Oprah's show. She only did one one show in Perth and gave her 100 tickets to bring along 50 of the girls and one parent. They met Oprah backstage and then Kim met Oprah at her hotel after the show. This is just incredible. I've got no a photo. kidding. She, she is in the book and um, I have 14 other women with experiences all different, like that, of women who have just risen up to the, they've stepped up to the plate, they've been to hell and back, they've been through the darkest period of their life where no one should go, and now they're giving back to women. It's particularly to women. We launch it on March 8, which is International Women's Day. And we wanted to find me and uh, Jennifer Rose Bryant. She's my partner in crime in this book. She um, is the founder and managing director of Business Women Australia. She has had this vision and it took me to bring that vision to life. That's what I do. That's why my company is called Create a Vision. (laughs) And I'm really excited about this book. What was the name of it again, Claire? inspirational wa women so they can find it on uh, my website creativevisionpublishing.com.au it's got an au at the end and uh, i don't know if i've done the short for it this book's come about so quickly that i don't know if i've even put a page up for it yet <laughs> i have to i don't have to have a look I well we'll I... definitely want to link it to your show notes as well that sounds fabulous. I do want to add to what you said about the about Kim, and that is that I recently met and interviewed a woman who had that exact same scenario happen to her daughter, but unfortunately her daughter died. And the the police investigation and the medical investigation went on for two years and they never found any other reason for her death other than she willed herself to die. So I can totally attest to what you said that that this does happen and the power of the mind is unbelievable in either direction. Well, I've got absolute goosebumps as you. I know. That's why I was, when I was listening to what you said, um, I was getting the goosebumps too and you may even want to share that with her because this and this woman, she was in her early 30s, had everything to live for. But she had told her mother since she was a young girl that the only thing she wanted to do was to die. And that's why they spent two years trying to find a cause of death, and there was none. Wow. So it's amazing what, you know, like you said, what the power of the mind is. On that note, <laughs> is that, thank you so much for sharing that. And I think that that will resonate as well because if, if it resonated with me, it's going to resonate with other people too. We don't know the lives that we touch when we share not only our own stories but those of other people who have come into our lives. So I thank you for that. Now, is there any other, is there a call to action, first of all, that you would like to give the audience? Well, um, you've got uh, listeners in, what, 50 countries? Yes. Well done, you. Well done, you. Um, the call to action is, look, to have a look at my website. I, I, the books that I am blessed to be writing and publishing and designing have a unilateral appeal. They're all stories. I'm a big believer in stories. Um, there's too little of it on the planet, and I think that if we share our stories as women particularly, um, and men as well, of course, that uh, women can be our best friends or our worst enemy. We can pull each other down <laughs> or 
relentlessly or we can build each other up. I'm a believer in building people up. I, I don't engage in gossip and hearsay and all mm-hmm. the time for it. Uh, today, just for today, what, whatever you're doing today, stop and think. How can you use a story to build someone up? Is it giving someone a message of hope? Is it listening to someone's story? Everyone has a story. And uh, part of writing Inspirational Women, I actually put the call out for women to send in their stories for consideration for the book. And while some of the stories um, weren't developed to perhaps the level of, say, Kim's, where Kim's got to a point in her life that she's inspiring every day, Mm -hmm. every single woman who sent a story in had a story. And uh, and I've written back to them personally and said, keep doing what you're doing. You're not in the book this year, but maybe next year or the year after. We intend to do this year after year. So today, look for a story. Spend five minutes of closing your mouth and just listening to someone. <laughs> <laughs> and you do, this, you do this every day. Even to get onto your show, I had to book, was it four months in advance? That's wow. about it, right. I booked into the middle of the year. People yeah. have, that's what I've always said. People have a story. We just need, and we never know how it's going to affect us. And not every story will affect us, but we'll, we can then take that story and share it with somebody else too it's an ongoing process it's an honor to do it if yes you, it is time to listen to someone's story um it can change your life as well it can change the moment that you are there. so we encourage you to do what claire said make it a storytelling day listen that's to right your, just make it a day of stories and around the planet wherever you are you will make a difference and energy will become positive in that moment Thank you, Claire, so much. You shared so many different things, so many different perspectives today. And the bottom line, right from the beginning when you were sharing the hopelessness that you felt, the message that comes through loud and clear is you didn't quit. You kept going. And because of that, many things have been accomplished in different arenas in your life and also the lives of others. And you've just started (laughs) (laughs) you know this is this is only the beginning so my hat is off to you i thank you i thank you for what you shared today and look forward to all the people that it is going to affect thank you claire you carol it's been lovely to chat thank you for listening to never ever give up hope featuring carol graham Did you know that most people succeed because they are determined to? Quitting was never an option. Carol loves your comments and will respond to each one. So please subscribe and review this podcast. A rating of five stars would be outstanding and appreciated. Remember, if you are still here, there is always hope.